just before the Buddha died, he recommended that we uh, learn to be our own light, to be our own refuge. One of the um, contexts for that ability to uh, create refuge and safety within ourselves and also bringing that refuge and safety and light um, into the world is developing and deepening uh, the light factors in the mind or heart, the seven factors of awakening or enlightenment. Uh, So I'd like to talk about these seven factors, especially um, keeping in mind that uh, the talk that I gave, I think, um, a while ago was on the dark forces in in the heart or mind, the hindrances. Uh, so the, the hindrances and the enlightenment or awakening factors, keep in mind, are impersonal uh, factors that will be coming and going um, as you practice. And hopefully one is uh, developing and deepening the refuge or light. And as we do that, we bring the light into the darkness uh, rather than trying to avoid the darkness. Uh, so because it's a, a conceptual framework, please keep in mind that if any of um, the ways that that framework is expressed uh, doesn't apply for you, remember that you can just let, let those aspects of it go and try to um, tune into and use what's useful for you. But the, the Buddha... Uh, divided the seven factors of enlightenment into the energizing factors and the tranquilizing factors. Uh, So the first factor is mindfulness, which is um, on its own. And it's considered the foundation of an awake heart. Uh, Because mindfulness is so important, it's said that it helps ripen all of the other six factors of enlightenment, as well as it keeps them in balance. Uh, So the next three after mindfulness are the energizing factors, uh, and they they are investigation, energy, or sometimes it's called courageous energy, and then rapture, or sometimes it's called joyful interest. And then the next three are the, are the calming or tranquilizing factors. Calm, concentration, equanimity. Uh, so please keep in mind that these factors are developing and ripening in different ways, sometimes visibly to us, sometimes invisibly to us. Sometimes it can seem like... Um, Calm is something very far away from us. Uh, and maybe it will develop and deepen later in our practice, you know, in, in a more visible way. Uh, but it can just appear in several moments and then disappear again. Or it might be that we really feel that investigation comes somewhat uh, easily for us, but maybe equanimity uh, seems more difficult.
one of the um, ways in which these factors work, which I think is so uh, awe-inspiring and beautiful, is, is when they are in balance just in one moment. You know, it only takes one moment. It's a moment of present time awareness. Uh, it means that the attention is, is very deeply connected with whatever's happening in the present moment. As we all hear, it, it doesn't matter what that moment's experience is, but we've really sunk into that moment's experience. We're, we're completely here. And because we've touched um, the truth of that moment so fully uh, without the intellectual um, knowledge in the way, there's a moment of complete understanding. And that's a moment of awakening. Uh, so in that moment of completion, or uh, when we get close to those moments of balance and completion, we really do understand that we don't need any more than what is in that moment. You know, when we glimpse the freedom uh, that the Buddha talked about, the liberation, you know, we really, we really feel and understand that potential for all of us to be free, happy, content, and in, imperturbable. Uh, so it can be helpful to be reminded that these factors aren't far away from us and they aren't obscure, uh, they're quite close by. These factors ripen, they evolve, mature. When they do come into balance, it will feel like a kind of grace. I like the word grace because it'll feel like there's no apparent reason uh, for this shift into this um, balance. But we can understand over time that, that you can um, experience this kind of grace only now. You know, it'll, it'll only happen in the present moment when we're fully there, when we're brushing our teeth, or when we're fully there eating some pasta, you know, when we're sitting down on our cushion. It's these moments of, of very exquisite tenderness and delicacy where we just really are there. Uh, so sometimes I like to use the example of learning to ride a bicycle, although this exquisite balance of um, being fully in the present moment is harder to learn than to ride a bicycle. But we know when we first learn to ride a bicycle how much we fall off. You know that that's part of learning is falling off bike, and it's the same in the practice, where we fall off into the past and the future, the past and the future. So the first factor of this light in the heart is mindfulness, and it's what allows us to begin again, to begin again, to begin again. Uh, it's this recollecting the attention. It's the remembering to be here. It's very simple. 
we tend to be so utterly complicated. It's so interesting how hard it is, it is for us to be that simple. And I think of mindfulness as um, the warp of the fabric of awakening. You know, it's necessary uh, for the whole weave of understanding to happen. And so the Buddha taught that a guarded mind will bring happiness. Uh, this is this factor of light. It, it's sometimes I think of it as awareness with understanding. We can understand that this mindfulness is a very immediate experience. It's non-judgmental, non-conceptual, pre-verbal. But sometimes it is um, important to remember the simplicity of don't know mind or beginner's mind, uh, that it's just a moment of renewal and that it can become a way of life. If we think of how renunciation intersects with mindfulness, it's when we can renounce the storyline of a thought, when we can renounce this involvement in the past or future, or the dream, rather than the truth of how things are happening in a moment. So in, in some ways, we understand over time of practice that we're encouraging you to develop this light in the heart as a way of life. I remember after my very first retreat at the end of two weeks when I left the retreat, I had this exhilaration as I walked out of the retreat. I thought, oh boy, I don't have to be mindful anymore. You know, it was just such a great feeling. I couldn't wait to get out of there. You know, it was just, oh, it felt like such a burden uh, to, to have to practice this coming back to the moment. You know, it was so distasteful. Uh, and then over time, <laughs> I developed a taste for it. You know, and you can see those times when, when we have a taste of the present moment, that's like one world. And when we have a taste, you know, for the dream, that's another world. And they seem so uh, far from each other. But we know when we have that taste for the truth of the present moment, we do feel that light in the heart. You know, we do feel that feeling of being home and why we do this. So the Buddha taught that all things can be, can be mastered by mindfulness. One of the things that can be helpful also when we consider what mindfulness is, um, is that it not only gives us freedom in the present moment, and if that has great power, but any time we make the choice to be here, that actually conditions um, the mind or heart to remember to be here again. The tricky part of that is, is that we can't control it. So, you know, I can, I can ask you, can you control a moment where you remember to be here? Well, probably you found out, you know, by this point in your practice, no. Maybe 
maybe we haven't accepted that totally. But when you do make that choice to be here, another moment is going to happen where we remember to be here. It's like we're planting a garden or seeds of remembering. And we will also see over time that the more we remember to be here, the more we remember to be here. And the less we remember to be here, the less we remember to be here. And there's a simplicity also in that. This is why we come on retreat. So we put ourselves in that incubator of reinforcing the remembering. It can be helpful also when we think of how profound this um, mindfulness factor of awakening is, that that it does include the four aspects that I've mentioned before of recognition, acceptance, interest, and non-identification. So a real, very uh, deep moment of mindfulness will include non-identification with experience. It will include being interested in the experience. It will include acceptance. It will include recognition. When my um, sister died this year, when I first um, felt it, uh, a lot of grief came up. And there was a question about grief this morning, so I thought I would um, give an example of, of you know, it's, it was a very clear, vivid example for me of how grief happens. And it was so strong that I think I got a pretty good view of it, although I seem to be getting <laughs> more practice with it this year than I've wanted. Um, so at first, the, the thought process that came was um, whimper, whimper, whimper. It was really interesting. It was just like being a hurt animal. You know, just that, that basic whimper, 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 whimper. And then the next feeling was, ouch, <laughs> ouch, ouch, ouch. I can't, this is just too, too painful. And then because I concluded that it was too painful and too heavy, I started feeling self-pity. So I, I started thinking, oh, poor me, poor me. And when that arose, I had so much resistance to that experience because I thought, I don't have self-pity. You know, I don't, you know, that isn't me. So there was a resistance to the experience. And when I finally was able to accept the self-pity, it was like it all broke. You know, like the resistance to it broke. And I could just, it was, it was almost fun. I was home alone, and I was walking around going, poor me, poor me, <laughs> poor me. Uh, and it, there was this joyful interest that came in the, in the face of what I felt was unbearable um, pain. And I felt, you know, again, so encouraged by the power of those four aspects of mindfulness, you know, the recognition, the acceptance, the interest, the non-identification. But try to remember that sometimes that isn't so clear, and sometimes there's a whole pattern with an experience. Like, so there's the word grief, but really, if I try to describe that to you in that situation, 
it was a whole cluster of thought patterns and um, body sensations and, and also emotions. I think that when we uh, can have the experience where we have the light in the mind and the refuge enough to go through an experience like that, uh, we can understand the Ojibwe, it's a Native American um, saying, uh, and some of you might have heard it before, but I find it really helpful uh, at times of grief. Sometimes I go about pitying myself when all the while great winds are carrying me across the sky. Now, whenever there's difficulty, we forget that there's something very deep and mysterious that's carrying us. Uh, and when we, when we remember it, uh, we can accept the range of joy and sorrow that we face as humans. So mindfulness is that um, very important foundation of an awake heart. And then investigation is the first of the energizing factors. Sometimes the shift from a very complacent, dull, uh, bored mind uh, to an investigative mind uh, can be very subtle. You know, it doesn't have to be intense. Uh, but it's, it's like we go from a dark room uh, to a place where it feels like a light comes on. It's like turning a light bulb on in a dark room. And it's just a shift from a kind of dullness to an alive quality to the attention. I did mention this before, but I think it's so important to recognize that investigation, a, a real, true, wise, pure investigation, requires being willing to be uncertain. It requires being willing to not know what the experience is. Because otherwise, it really is a concept about experience. There'll be an overlay, a memory from the past. Uh, so that that ab ability to just be here in the present moment without that overlay uh, requires moving from that complacency of thinking we know to this crackling, alive uncertainty. And, and that really is what allows us to go from boredom and dullness to this more awake, alive mind. So if we just take the example of the movement of the breath, there's something very alive about it, isn't it? It never stays still. You know, that's the nature of something alive. Or life in general. You can take anything, the sounds, the body sensations, the thoughts, the emotions. It's like some people have been coming in for interviews lately just kind of saying, you know, there's so much happening. And when we, when we have that sense that there's so much happening, that's insight. You know, we have these whole <laughs> eyes, ears, nose, you know, skin, mind door. It's like we're just bombarded in a way by sensory experience. There's so much happening. And it's so alive. It 
can we can we really meet that aliveness with with this light, uncertain attention? So this this shift from this kind of dull complacency to a kind of crackling aliveness can sometimes happen through just a very simple question once in a while. So if you're doing walking meditation and you start to feel like it's just becoming mechanical and rote, you know, you can't force investigation, but one can come up with a little question like, you know, sometimes it's just saying what's happening right now, but sometimes it's really questioning, you know, what is this experience that I call foot or leg? you know, free from the past, with the breath, with an emotion, you know, say we have an experience of fear, are we able to really let go of all past memories of our experience with fear and just ask the question, you know, what is fear? What is the experience of it right now? You know, so there has to be that willingness um, to have that, what we call the don't know mind, that is so alive. And this this willingness um, to be uncertain will help us to light up the three characteristics of existence. So it's said that invest, wise investigation does light up uh, our understanding of change. It helps us to understand change on all levels. Investigation helps us to understand dukkha or insecurity on all levels. Investigation is what helps light up the experience or understanding of emptiness or the insubstantialness of experience. We might hear the expression wise investigation. Uh, and I'd like to describe an example of what um, is unwise is, uh, investigation. So if, if aversion or attachment are leading the investigation, it will really be manipulation or control. It won't be a, a kind of pure exploration. Uh, so, for example, um, I've had a lot of body dukkha karma over the years, and it took me a long time to understand when I was really being with a physical pain uh, with pure exploration, and when I would really be just staying with those physical sensations, but actually there was a lot of aversion happening, and I wouldn't know it. So I would sit there with my attention, really with twisting, burning, throbbing, you know, the tightening, uh, and at times, the mindfulness would be there. In fact, look closely, because it's often when we're there with mindfulness and investigation, we're there. But remember, these factors of awakening can come out of balance in, a, in just as quickly as it came into balance. So say you're going along and you feel like you're really there, there's no agenda, but then maybe the energy goes down like as quickly as the weather turned cold, you know, the, the, the shift can happen. Maybe the equanimity goes down. It's not personal. But we really don't want to face it. So we stay, we keep our attention with the physical sensations, but actually 
we're resisting the aversion. And it would be much better and more skillful to shift back to something neutral, like the breath. And then if we had the ability to investigate the aversion, great. But it's not necessary. It's, it, it's just as skillful to shift back to the neutral anchor. Now this is why we develop a neutral anchor. So there's somewhere to go to rest the attention when we can't be with difficult or even slightly irritating physical or mental or emotional experiences. So it took me a while to realize that when I would stay with these physical sensations longer than the real pure exploration was happening, I was actually reinforcing a manipulator, a controller. You know, and once I started getting that, you know, it was kind of horrifying to me to realize how much time I had spent thinking I was, you know, working those sensations out. You know that feeling when you're doing body work on yourself for an hour? And, you know, you think maybe you've gotten rid of that chronic pain, wherever it is, for the rest of your life. You know, or I can't tell you how many walking periods I've spent thinking I'm learning how to walk the right way to avoid the pain <laughs> somewhere. I mean, maybe some of you don't have body karma and don't have these uh, issues, uh, but I'm sure there are times when you're sitting there, you know, and the knee pain, or, you know, sometimes people have a meat hook in the <laughs> behind the shoulder blades. There's something that you'll think you're really getting rid of, uh, but actually what we're getting is reinforcement of aversion. So that's a description of unwise investigation. One of the aspects of the factors of awakening that's so important is that they are in an order for a reason. Uh, And so if you look at mindfulness and then investigation, the next factor of awakening is energy or courage. And so it's requiring this mindfulness and then the investigation of a present moment experience to actually have the courage to bring the attention to it. Uh, And so it's said that this is right effort, uh, really, courage. But it's said to be courage because why? You know, why does it take so much courage to be in the present moment? It's because of this change of pleasure to pain, to neutrality, this unpredictable, uncertain stream of change. So if, if, if human life was just pleasurable sensations and thoughts, etc., if it was just this one big, you know, honeypot that we lived in, courage wouldn't be so hard. But it, it is because of change that uh, this investigation into truth and freedom is difficult. So it's said that uh, truth isn't at the end of our efforts, but it, truth is really here and now. I think one of the um, aspects of courageous energy uh, that is humbling for us, especially in a long retreat, is this shift from effortless practice to times where we really need to apply effort and then times where it's effortless 
and we like it so much. You know, I just, sometimes I feel like I ride a bike once in a while around here just to remember how much I love going downhill. You know, because, you know, no matter what, you know, we like that effortlessness. Uh, and when we start needing to apply some effort, maybe it's just some simple noting, very light noting, or maybe it's just, you know, that ability to realize that it's going to take more than just that riding down, the gliding. Um, it's humbling. And if we take it personally, we won't, we won't apply the effort necessarily that we need to. And even if we observe the way birds fly, you know, you can see that sometimes they really have to make effort to, to leave the ground. And other times you'll see that they catch the wind current and they can fly in this effortless way. Uh, but it's not that it lasts forever. It shifts back to them needing to come back down and make effort again. When I first um, sat a three-month retreat with Sayadaw Upandita, and we would have an interview with Sayadaw every day, um, day after day after day, and one of his um, favorite expressions that he would uh, say to me at the end of my interview would be, make more effort. You know, and then you know, another interview would come by and he'd say, make more effort. And I would feel like I was at this incredible stretch that I'd never made before in my practice. I mean, I was stretching like I'd never done before. And I would hear him say, make more effort. And everything in me would just tighten up and cringe. And I'd want to scream, there's no way I can make more effort. <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, how can you say that? And I'd leave. And I'd really um, have to face my ambition and my striving. You know, and it was like just the way that he was teaching me, you know, I would get so angry because I could blame him for having to face my ambition or I could blame myself, which I would do. I'd fall back to hating myself uh, for the, having to see the striving or hating him. Uh, but really, he didn't mean when he said make more effort to strive at all. It was my interpretation. And then I could get into blaming my culture, <laughs> my conditioning. You know, if it doesn't work to blame yourself or the teacher, you can blame the culture. But, I mean, then I had to, it all boiled down to, this was really in me. And the more that I wanted not to strive, the more I kept seeing this ambition. And over time, as I started to be able to accept you know, it was very humbling because I thought I was satisfied with my practice and that, you know, that I was really um, equanimous with what ha was happening. And that relationship, um, there was so much desire for approval on top of seeing all the striving. It was so painful. Uh, but toward the end of that retreat, I started feeling so much grateful gratefulness to him. Uh, for helping me to face the striving and to understand what right effort is, you know, or what courageous energy is. So hopefully you're facing the striving, facing the ambition. That's how we, we get free.
there's a real difference between um, ardency and aspiration and ambition and striving. And sometimes that can be quite subtle. I think we know when uh, pure exploration is happening, when we see that there's no anticipation or no expecting anything, but there's really just letting life be as it is in those moments. Uh, So we see that courageous, courageous energy is this love of the truth. You know, it's the love of facing whatever is in the moment rather than what we're wanting to be happening in the moment. You know, so as we start to investigate this balanced effort in practice, um, usual, usually we'll have to face the comparing mind because the root, the root of this um, striving, this unbalanced effort, is comparing. And the, the, the comparing is the opposite of a pure, humble heart. You know, it's the opposite of a don't-know mind. And if we just briefly look at how comparing happens, it's all based on comparison. The Buddha said that that kind of comparison is madness. And he taught it as the, the three kinds of conceit. I am better. I am equal. I am less than. And how many times do we want to be the best yogi here? You know, or I'm, <laughs> I'm special. I'm a special yogi. I'm doing great. You know, there's that, there's that kind of thought process, um, which is kind of a classical Western idea of what conceit is. Uh, but then there's, I am equal to everybody. You know, things are getting kind of bad. At least we can think we're equal to someone <laughs> or something, or some, some kind of other experience. We don't have to compare with each other. We can compare with ourselves, with the sitting that happened yesterday or five years ago. And then there's feeling worthless. Like, you know, we're the worst yogi. And one, one way we see this happen is all around identification with experience. So usually we'll find when we're having that real effortless practice and the seven factors of awakening are somewhat in balance, if you look closely, we'll feel invincible. You know, it doesn't feel like anything could touch that. It doesn't feel like we could possibly lose clarity. You know, how could it possibly happen? Uh, And then there's that (laughs) downward spiral, you know, to not only are we not invincible, we are just crap. You know, we can't see anything clearly, and we're never going to. You know, we're never going to. That how, you know, it's just like the weather to me. You know, the other day, it was so warm, and it was so, the breeze just felt caressing, and it was so pleasant. And now it's just so cold. Now, if you like the cold, you might be finding it pleasant. But for me, it's a bit unpleasant. You know, so noticing that change is how things happen inside the inner weather. So if we notice that um, identification with experience over time, 
we start to understand that attachment to experience destroys courage. And so no matter what the peak experience is that we're attached to, if we look closely, it's just attachment. And we could just as well be attached to a piece of chocolate or a person you know, or a book. It's, it's even though it feels like a very important thing to be attached to in terms of some experience and practice, it's just wanting. And it's really that force of wanting uh, that, that will really prevent us from being courage when it's pr- having courage when that's present. And so the greatest teaching, as we find out, is that nothing's worth being attached to because that suffering is not worth it if we see clearly. We'll see that it's madness. Ultimately, it can be helpful to look at our relationship to patience and how that relationship to patience affects our courage and energy. Because if we dislike where we are or hate where we are in any given moment, it'll bring down the energy or the courage. Sometimes when we take experience personally, you know, and we're impatient with what's happening, we can feel not only frustrated, but betrayed by experience. And this is when we can get into those self-hatred attacks, and the opposite of courage happens. But fear, fear happens, and we can feel like debilitated by our experience. And so I like to sometimes use the model in this case of um, the transformation process that happens from a caterpillar to a cocoon to a butterfly in relationship to energy. And I think that because culturally we, can, we tend to be quite an impatient culture, um, you'll notice that most people will identify with the transformation you know, with a butterfly, you know, flitting around. But how many people identify with a worm? You know, this little strange (laughs) segmented being, you know, that just eats all day, you know, to, 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 you know, excrement to excrement. I mean, that's a worm, and we don't tend to like that. But actually, that's part of the practice, those times when we're just, making that kind of effort of another walking period, another sitting, another walking period, another sitting. I know sometimes that's hard. It isn't always downhill, you know, but we just put in our time. We let ourselves just surrender to that process. And then other times it'll feel like we're in a cocoon and there'll be a feeling that nothing's happening. And we forget that that's okay. Uh, and I, I can't tell you how many times in all the years I sat with Upandita Gita, which was many, many years, um, it would seem like months would go by before he'd give me some kind of different instruction. And he would get this gleam in his eyes, and he would say, digest it. 
extensively, digest it, digest it. The other side of make more effort was digest it, digest it, and I'd be like, <laughs> how long, how long, you know, and I'd get so impatient, and yet again, I can look back and see, wow, he had so much patience, you know, so much more than I had, and so grateful again for, you know, being encouraged to stay where I was. That's okay. And we all know that if we come out of a cocoon before we're ready, you know, the wings aren't strong enough for flight. Um, and, it, and it takes a lot of courage to just go along and know that we would be preferring to have effortless practice in those moments. And it's really an, an aspect of understanding purification. Uh, because when, when these seven factors are in balance, It'll feel like the practice is very pure. It's when we call it good practice, it will feel effortless. Even if that happens for one moment, it only requires one moment, purification's going to happen. The shit is going to hit the fan. The hindrances are going to appear. If they don't, why would you possibly be here? You know, what's the point? You know, but we, we get so attached to the purity. Uh, that, and of course we want to be here too. We really want to understand what it's like for the mind and heart to be pure. But unless we're fully enlightened, <laughs> you know, we're going to have to face the deeper roots of the suffering. So I think it helps again and again to be reminded of that, that they're both important. The worm, <laughs> the cocoon, and the butterfly are all aspects of the practice. Uh, so the last of the energizing factors, which is probably all I'll get to tonight, is the energizing factors, um, is joyful interest. Sometimes it's called rapture. Uh, and I love that it's described as joyful interest. Uh, it's joyful because one has overcome the pleasure-pain syndrome. You know, so it said, if we can be mindful, if we bring some investigation in, if there's the courage to really face the truth of the moment, if we actually have the courage to come to touch what's happening in the moment, no matter whether it's painful or pleasant or neutral, joyful interest will arise. And it's joyful because even if something's painful, we have this interest. Now again, I think you can reflect as I'm saying this and remember a time when that's happening. And it feels wonderful. When we can actually be interested in new pain. When we can actually be interested in fear. You know, it's so radical. It really means that the aversion and attachment aren't present. You know, there's no controller happening. The Buddha taught that this factor of awakening is the doorway to enlightenment. And, and again, culturally, I think it's very helpful to keep in mind <laughs> that joy, joy is the doorway to freedom. You know, that it, it's something one um, learns 
not to reject the experience of joy and not to indulge in it. It's an energy that appears in the practice that we learn how to navigate with and that helps us go deeper into freedom. I've been really um, looking at my relationship to acorns this year because, you know, I think that this year is quite the prolific year for acorns. I mean, um, Steve and I stay in a cottage down by the study center and there's this little wooden porch, wooden porch on the back of the cottage. And my window, my bedroom window, which I keep open, is right next to the porch. And um, I haven't been getting much sleep the last few weeks because when the wind blows, the acorns fall on the wood and it's like really loud. You know, and I'll have this thought, you know, it's unpleasant, I'm not, you know, not sleeping and I'll just have this whole idea about why do they have to be so many acorns. And then I might go out the next morning and actually take a look. So what is an acorn? Anytime you think you know what an acorn is, you're going to miss the experience. You know, and so this, this, this lack of wonder, you know, this lack of awe prevents us from being with an experience. We miss another experience. We miss another experience. So for me this fall, the acorns are my teacher in terms of beginner's mind or not. Am I just irritated by them? Am I paying attention to them? And can I really take the time to pick one up and really experience acorn? This is how it is with every sound, every sight, every smell, every touch, thought, emotion. Either we choose to pay attention to it in this way or not. The reason why um, there are tranquilizing factors uh, and the reason why they're in this order is because, you know, there's the mindfulness, then the investigation, then this courage, and then the joyful interest. And if we don't learn how to work with this joy, it can get out of balance. And, you know, we can sort of, the balloon will start to build and we'll feel feel full. And uh, if you look at the Buddha, for example, right now, you know, the smile on the Buddha's face is quite sublime. Yeah, he's not having a laughing fit. You know, the the joy hasn't become over-exuberant. You can see that there's, in the imagery, there's this real balance that's coming with the joy. And we can see how when joy arises, Uh, that it's so easy for us to not be mindful of the pleasure. Or we don't trust it. We don't trust the pleasure and we push it away because we're afraid of getting out of balance with it. You know, so it takes this exquisite balance of letting the pleasure of the joyful interest come and to neither reject it or get over-exuberant. Uh, so an example of how to work with this is um, last week when I went to my um, nephew's wedding. It was a very 
powerful time for me because I did start raising these three children when I was 11. And my nephew is now 32. And it was like having him get married. It was like this whole cycle of my life felt like um, was that that part of my life was completing. I felt that they'd all made it, you know, that they were okay. Um, And it felt wonderful. And not only that, but that a lot of my um, old friends who I called in at that time in my life to help me um, were there. And my nephew actually got up in front of everyone and said, thank you to everybody in this room who helped raise me. And it was just so beautiful, you know, his acknowledgement of everyone that um, touched his life. You know, so as I was leaving, the party, which was the best party in some ways that any of us had ever had together, with my family and friends, um, I felt so full. And it, it was a three-hour drive back here. And I felt this pleasure, you know, from the fullness and the happiness that I could start to feel how I started to identify with it. You know, and I was alone in the car and I was driving, and it was so clear that if I didn't start noting enjoyment, I was going to get lost. You know, so if you, if you feel like you start noticing, you know, times when you feel the joy coming, and you feel, it could be just from looking at the leaves of the trees and noticing the beauty, but, but anything that's bringing you that kind of delight and pleasure, to notice if you start rejecting it, that you don't trust it, or that you start kind of, you know, building up and about to explode, there is a way, the Buddha taught this is the doorway to enlightenment, there is a way to just notice that energy, and if you start getting caught, to just be mindful of enjoyment, enjoyment, and often just that mindfulness will keep it in balance. We can also see how when we don't do this, this is what is the root of addiction. We miss the pleasure, we miss the enjoyment, and we cling. And I could feel that starting to happen as I was driving here. I could feel myself starting to miss these children because we miss each other, you know? And it's like missing, missing. It doesn't have to go to clinging. Not if we're mindful. So to finish off that little cycle, um, it was interesting for me to watch, just notice the fullness that I was experiencing. It started to dissipate, and it became neutrality, which is one of the more difficult places for me to be mindful, uh, because all of a sudden that intensity was gone, and there was just that neutrality. And as I wasn't mindful of the neutrality, I could see it started to go into an emptiness, but not a positive emptiness. It was like a... Um, a desolate kind of emptiness. And so I started to just notice how, wow, how it could go from this fullness to this kind of emptiness and just be mindful of it. And it just, as as I was driving, I watched that cycle uh, go and there was a joyful interest in it. No need to get caught in any of it. If we notice that we can't follow a kind of cycle like that, 
and we start to notice we're really getting um, attached to the enjoyment, attached to the pleasure, it can be really helpful to do some mudita practice. And most of you, I think, know it, but it's, you know, instead of the metta phrases, what one is doing is appreciating the joy in this world. And it can be another really helpful tool to help balance when this joyful interest arises in something that we notice we're going to start clinging to, to shift to just appreciating the joy in this world, appreciating the joy in our life, uh, appreciating the blessings. You know, it's, it's instead of caring about pain in the world, caring about sorrow, instead of the compassion, it's, it's this quality of appreciation that will also help us bring this, this um, factor into balance. So sometime, um, I'll finish <laughs> these factors. We got the energizing ones, so too bad about the tranquilizing ones. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> For now, just say, may I have ease of well-being while living in this world. You know, that'll help bring calm. Uh, so I'd like to end with a... Um, haiku poem. This was a uh, Zen teacher's favorite haiku that he ever wrote, Sun Roshi. He was asked when he was a very old man what his best haiku was, and he said this one was his best haiku. And this is um, a kind of poetic way of describing when these seven factors are in balance. All beings are blossoms, blossoming in a blossoming universe. All beings are blossoms, blossoming in a blossoming universe. Let's sit for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.